Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, ni hao, marhaben, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories 2021. I'm your host, Betsy Olam, and this is our second podcast of year number three. I am so grateful to the many, many listeners who have subscribed. And I attribute this to the amazing guests who have shared their stories with us. Today's guest is a perfect example. I'm very honored to have with us John Scanapieco, chair of the global business team of Baker Donaldson, the renowned law firm that began in Tennessee. You'll see why John is a go-to counsel on international business matters and a sought-after public speaker. But first of all, we are all about storytelling here, and there is another story I want to tell you about. It's the story about how one company can help you solve your commercial real estate needs, whether in town, across the nation, or over the oceans. That company is Levy Commercial Realty, LLC. They provide strategic commercial real estate advisory and brokerage services. I'm talking about retail. I'm talking about restaurant, entertainment, and distribution. Levy's clients include local legends, regional brands, and Fortune 50 companies known around the world. You're going to want to join Levy's select group of clients. Their email is contact at levycommercial.com. That's Levy, L-E-V-Y, commercial.com, and I'll post it on our website. Now back to the show. Now then, joining us from Nashville, Tennessee, is John Scanapieco. John, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, it's great. It's great that you could take some time to be with us. And I'm excited to get to your stories. But first, uh, let's give our listeners a more in-depth introduction to you and Baker Donaldson, because we have people from all over the world that listen to this podcast. So uh, let's start. Uh, where are you from originally, John? So I'm originally from the Boston, uh, Massachusetts area, and my father decided to move us to South Texas when I was 14. Uh, wow. A little bit of a culture shock. And then oh, when wow. it came time to decide on my first job, I ended up settling right in the middle of Texas and Massachusetts and Nashville. Uh, and I've been here, uh, I guess now this is my 31st year. Oh, wow. Um, so tell us a little bit about your educational background and kind of how you followed a path to the law. Sure. So I, I ended up um, going to uh, college at Washington and Lee University, which is a very small school in Lexington, Virginia. Um, and then I, at that time, um, you know, the economy was not doing all that great. And it seemed like, you know, LA law was the big show on TV <laughs> and people weren't going to business school. And I was an economics major. So I either had to be an economist, go work for a bank, or I decided to go to law school. And so I, uh, I went to law school and my mother being a very Italian mother 
um, shamed me into coming to law school back in Texas, even though I really wanted to go to school up in Boston. And uh, I ended up going to law school at SMU, uh, Southern Methodist University Law School in Dallas. Um, and then when I graduated, I had some opportunities in Texas or an opportunity to come to Nashville. And I decided to uh, you know, head this way. Okay. Well, at least you got to see a, a lot of the country before you were like 22. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I used to drive um, between uh, San Antonio and college. And then my sister at that point had moved back to Boston. So I used to go visit her. So I used to literally drive from Texas, uh, pick up a friend or two in New Orleans, because you had to stop in New Orleans, and then go on to uh, uh, Atlanta. And then we drive literally up the East Coast, stopping along the way, visiting friends that we had from college. And then all of my family lived in the Boston, Providence, Rhode Island area. And of course, we had to get fed by my grandmothers because that you can't pass oh, that wow. up. And then we uh, one year we drove all the way up to Canada and then back down to uh, um, to Virginia. It was, it was, uh, it was yeah. I mean, I, I really enjoyed seeing. I think I I feel like I've seen most of the East Coast um, oh, at this well, point. There's there's nothing like that in your twenties. That's what I tell my kids but anyway so that oh no wow. you're right I, I i had a book bag with a couple of things of clothes in it and that's about it so you're exactly <laughs> right <laughs> love it well um so was there an evolution into global business or which is the you know area that you are in in the law or was this yeah. something you had always kind of had an interest in I was very lucky growing up. So my father, um, when we moved from the Boston area down to Texas, he, along with another gentleman who was already in South Texas, started a company uh, called Santa Fresh, and it was liquid soap. I don't know if maybe you remember the dispensers. There were these yeah. soap dispensers in the bath with the hands with the little bubbles. So oh, yeah. he started that company, and by the time they sold the business, I believe they were in about 42 countries around the world. And one of the interesting things about my dad is not only he's a serial entrepreneur, he's got more energy than anybody will ever meet, is that he um, you know, wouldn't take people or prospects, customers or distributors or others that he worked with out to a restaurant and have a meeting. He would bring them into our house. And so as a, as a young, uh, you know, probably even a young teenager, maybe 12, 13 years old, um, I would meet these people from all over the world. And, you know, as a kid, especially an Italian kid, you would sit there, you wouldn't really say much, but you would just listen to these conversations and you just learn so much about all these different people around the world. And, and I really realized that, you know, for the most part, people are very much the same world. They have the same issues that we do. They may just use different spices in the food or, you know what I mean, maybe practice a different religion, but for the most part, we're very similar. And so I always had an interest in, you know, global business, but I, I was under the impression because, you know, we didn't have lawyers in my family. I thought in order to do cross-border legal work, you had to go like to Harvard University or Georgetown, and you had to work in Washington, D.C. in order to do it. And so I, you know, I, I, it was a dream I had, but I never, I, you know, I didn't think it was possible for me. And so when I came to Nashville, and I was working at then a firm called Bolt Cummings, Connors and Barry. You know, I did a lot of trial work, commercial work. Um, and one day I was at a meeting of uh, the Nashville Chamber and I met uh, a, a gentleman there who was at that time running the International Business Council of the Chamber. And we started talking, became friends. And he was telling me about a survey I think they had just completed at that time. 
And he was saying how they were over, I believe, and I remember not get the exact number right because it's been a while, but about 1,400 um, businesses that responded to this survey that were doing cross-border business in the Nashville, you know, metropolitan area. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, that is a lot of businesses, and I wonder who is helping them from a legal perspective. And then, you know, I talked to some folks at my law firm, and they were kind enough to let me try um, to maybe uh, do some of this work. And I was able to tap into, you know, a network that I had made of, of lawyers from around the world. And I started helping them with work in the United States, and they started helping me on work outside of the United States. And slowly but surely, it evolved into a full-time um, practice. And now I've been doing cross-border work you know, probably for over 20, maybe uh, I've been practicing law for 31 years. So I've been maybe 25 years I've been doing cross-border work. And it's been, you know, really for me, I, I just love it because you, you know, like I said, you, you get to solve a different problem in a different country and you get to meet different people from different places. So it's been a real, um, real, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you it was easy. I mean, in fact, I was, in some cases I, I was laughed at. I remember going to the American Bar Association, uh, international section meeting, you know, the little, the, the section of the bar that focuses on this stuff. And, you know, I didn't know anybody and you're trying to meet some people and you got your name tag of your name and where you're from. And I, I can't tell how many people would walk up to me, look at my name, maybe look at where I'm from. I wasn't sure. Maybe my name alone was enough to frighten them, but also <laughs> it could have been where I was from. And they would just look at me, shake their head and walk away. I had one guy say like, why are you here? You know, you're from Nashville. And again, I, I don't think I don't. I think people just didn't realize that you know Nashville really had maybe obviously not as much as say Chicago or New York or Atlanta or some other places at that time cross border business, but there was significant flow you know trade flows with Memphis you know right um, uh, and Nashville and and some of the other cities and towns you know in Tennessee that were doing cross border you know business. And, uh, you know, so I've been really fortunate uh, that I was able to, you know, my law firm gave me that opportunity, my first law firm, and we were able to really build on that um, and and now have a, you know, a full-time practice with the group. Um, That's all we do, 24-7. It's all we think about. I think my wife, uh, I drive her crazy with that because I'm always (laughs) thinking about it. (laughs) Oh, no. I mean, that's where I just go back to something you said about when you were growing up and your dad bringing home customers. Those are some of my best memories in my international business career of that really personal side, you know, eating at someone's home or Mm -hmm. going to do something, seeing something scenic in their town or country. It's that's what makes it so rich doing the international business to me, at least. Uh, Oh yeah. I mean, just learning about like different holidays and how they approach different issues and, I mean, it was just, you know, as a as a kid growing up, uh, I mean, you know, it was the most exotic thing I had ever and probably ever thought in my lifetime that I would ever experience. I mean, we had people from the Middle East. We had people from uh, Asia. We had people from Central and South America. I mean, from Canada, from really all Europe, all over the place, just coming through that house. And now, it, much to the disappointment or, or, or despair of my mom, my father usually wouldn't tell her they were coming until about <laughs> four o'clock, and then because um, he would forget. But uh, but but it was great. I mean, uh, once the panic subsided, my mom could cook up a great Italian meal. Um, you know, it was uh, yeah, it was it was just a lot of fun just to sit there and you know listen to these conversations and and also listen to how people did business. 
you know, what was important, say, for, say, somebody in maybe Israel that was different from somebody in Japan and, and how my father would negotiate some of these uh, relationships. And, I mean, even after he sold the company, uh, you know, he's 83 now, and I, I think he still talks to some of these folks. And what's really interesting, he was telling me the other day, uh, he's helping a company here, and he introduced them to one of his big distributors back in the day. And he's, I think, now talking to the grandson. I mean, in terms of, you know, the the the, oh. you know, the, the first person. So it's really kind of neat to see, you know, some of that. And he taught me a lot about, you know, about doing business and about trying to get to yes, and not always just telling people why they couldn't, you know, so it's really fascinating. Oh, that's lovely. That's lovely. Well, this is a, a more mundane question, but I just want people to understand on the business side, just uh, if you can tell us a little bit about the counsel you give your class, sure. your areas of expertise, so we can understand that. Right. So, you know, our, our practice is what I'll call a fully integrated cross-border practice. So what I do, I don't just say do mergers and acquisitions, or I don't just do commercial contracts. You're buying or selling something. We really try to provide a more a holistic approach to help a company, you know, identify what its goals are, maybe from a cross-border perspective, maybe to do a business deal, a transaction, resolve a dispute or some other issues. And then we help craft that solution and then implement that solution. So that can be anything from helping them uh, identify uh, potential partners, uh, maybe t with whom they can do business, uh, maybe making an investment in a in a um, uh, a country, you know, a different country like France or the UK, maybe a brick and mortar, or just helping them set up dis distribution rights in different countries, licensing uh, intellectual property. Um, you know, we helped one uh, hosp small hospital system. They were looking for additional revenue streams, and we helped them uh, identify they had all of this intellectual property, basically know-how, right, of how to really run a hospital, how to set it up and how to run it. And so we started licensing that to um, groups in China who were developing hospitals. Because again, our folks were never going to go to China. These folks were never going to come to Tennessee. And it was a great way for them to develop a revenue stream and take what they knew and really share it with others and help them develop best practices. So we'll, we'll do things like that. Um, uh, we also do we, – we represent a lot of non-U.S. companies and helping them come to the United States uh, either to invest or to buy or sell products or services. Um, so really it's a, it's a full – we buy real estate. We sell real estate. We help set up um, um, uh, you know, different kinds of uh, trusts and other uh, arrangements in, in the uh, Caribbean or other low-tax jurisdictions. Um, we do like we manage global uh, HR uh, for um, companies that don't have that uh, maybe that capability within their uh, company. We also do um, we help with a lot of trade and trade compliance um, mm -hmm. as well. So you know, as you know, you're in this business. Uh, the U.S. government is not making it any easier sometimes for us to all export. Um, there's you know more and more regulation and and all for good reason. I mean I, I think it's very important that we stay on top of it. But again, yeah. for a small and medium sized company, that is very challenging. And so we help try to you know really cut through a lot of the regulations and really help them distill it down to what what do they really need to know. And we help them set up compliance programs that they can manage primarily on their own, um, so that they can stay out of trouble. 
because you know the U.S. government now is it doesn't really seem to matter how big or how small you are, um, and, and and that's I think it become a very challenging aspect of doing business abroad. But again, that's something we can help make it so much more manageable um, and explain and and really help them understand what they really need to do and maybe what they don't have to necessarily spend a lot of time on. Right, right. Um, and I know, <clears throat> and, and you mentioned it, China is a market that you've done a lot of business with or worked yes. worked on projects. And I've, I've, I guess I could really say I've done business with China since the 80s. Um, how do you, today, how hard or easy is it to enforce these legal agreements in China? Yeah, that's an excellent question because I think a lot of times people they see what they see in the newspaper or they hear what they hear on the you know the news you know either it's CNN or Fox or you know one of those of those type and what they hear about is oh it's just horrible you can't do anything and and really I want to I want to dispel because that that's a myth I believe. If you're going to do business in China, it's very important you work with a practitioner who actually has that China experience. Because, for example, they can draft what I call a China-based agreement, one that ultimately will be in Chinese. Maybe that will use Chinese enforcement mechanisms that will have liquidated damage provisions that will, you know, will walk through how have you protected your IP, your intellectual property, and to make sure that it's protected properly. Again, my, our experience has been when we've had issues in China um, and we've gone to court in China with the appropriate um, agreements that I'm not going to tell you we win all the cases because you don't win all the cases here either. But but we, we do better than than most. And uh, what where I see the real failure is, is when. You know, I feel bad for the company that goes to their maybe long-term corporate attorney, but that person who just you know works in the United States takes an agreement they've used here in the United States, they give it to them, and they have the Chinese you know counterparty sign it, and then when it all goes bad, or or it's just time to break up, not because it's bad, they find that they don't really have any remedies, and it's because again not focusing on using you know protecting the IP correctly and using the right agreements and and vetting. Um, your potential business partners correctly, not just, you know, again, it's a very different process than it is, say, here. And these are things that we help, you know, the client understand. And even, are you even ready to do that kind of business? Um, Because in some cases, they just don't have the resources they can devote to managing that relationship, because you know, that's not easy. It takes, it takes a long time, usually, to establish a, a business like that. But, you know, it's in China's economic interest to provide a a legal platform where people can feel like they can safely invest and do business there. So, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. No, and and you actually hit, I think, at a big point that I think most people don't really understand. You know, let's say back in the 80s when you were working in China, you know, they didn't, they were still desperate for out, you know, for foreign investment to really fuel that growth that they've now been able to, 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 you know, to fund all that development. And they didn't have their own brands. They didn't have their own intellectual property. And so a lot of that, I'll say, we'll call it theft or, or yeah, theft um, was simply because they didn't have their own. Now you have though, a lot of Chinese brands that are very popular. Um, you have Chinese intellectual property that needs to be protected. And to your point, if the Chinese government doesn't, or the judiciary doesn't protect that those rights, those contract rights, or those intellectual property rights, investment rights, then they'll never really develop. 
And it's not just because the, the non-Chinese won't invest there anymore, but the Chinese themselves won't, won't waste their time developing an idea or a product if it's just going to be stolen. They'll go to the United States or they'll go to Europe or they'll go someplace else where that rule of law, I think, it, it applies uh, uh, more generally. And yep. so, and so, it's really important. Now, I'm not going to tell you though that there's not some favoritism, or or that at the end of the day, if even though your contract is is dead on right and you should win that lawsuit, but if you win, you're going to really impact significantly maybe the largest employer in a certain tier four city. That you know the overall good to China that usually wins out the day. Um, and so you have to understand that, that that is still there. You have to understand that process. But, but overall, I'm still very bullish on doing business in China. You just have to do it in a smart way um, right. versus just jumping in like just because you did business in Mexico does not necessarily mean you're prepared to do business, say, in China or right. Canada or even Europe. So it's just that, right. that process. But, you, but you were, you're exactly right. I mean, you're starting to see that evolution now in China. And um... – I should know the answer to this question, but I don't. But uh, has there been, what would you say the transition has been from state-owned companies to private companies? Are there truly private companies in China or is there still some kind of state control in every business? That's a good question. And I think what you were seeing uh, you know, with the with the initial reforms after the death of Mao, um, you saw this slowly but surely this transition from the the complete state-run economy with nothing but state-owned enterprises to more and more private enterprise, private companies, and and you really, I mean, and, and really in throughout China, I mean, there's just a significant number of truly private companies. Um, I unfortunately, though, I think those reforms have started to slow. And so with President Xi um, and, and the Communist Party, the, the, those that are that are in charge anyway, they believe that China can achieve its greatness through more state control. And so what's happened is a lot of the resources that were being allocated to private enterprise, whether it's, you know, capital or even on the regulatory side, you know, things like that are now being redirected and and, and directed towards promoting the state-owned enterprise. And so you're starting to see the the, the rise again of the state-owned enterprise. Now, there is still... Um, uh, I mean, I, you know, I, a ton is not even the right word. I mean, there is a significant amount of private enterprises in China. But what, what you're seeing, though, is somewhat of a stagnation now um, because these resources. So instead of the banks loaning to the the private in, in, in enterprise, they're loaning to the state-owned enterprise. And as we've seen, you know, state-owned enterprises at some point there's just not the same incentive structure to 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 become efficient, to develop, uh, you know, new innovative. And, and innovate. And so right. what happens is you get this stall and I, you're starting to see some of that. I'll be curious to see whether this, um, uh, whether this will continue, which I think it will. Um, or again, you'll see again, these reforms that will open up again, but it just seems like over the last eight, I'd say eight years, maybe 10, um, you've seen some, a little backsliding towards that state-owned enterprise. Now, even with private enterprise, though, the government still has a pretty heavy hand right. in, um, you know, in the economy. But it's not like it was where the, you know, where the state said, okay, 
you know, we're going to give you 10 staplers and we're going to make you grow so many bushels of corn. I mean, it's not that controlled, um, but, but they still do have a pretty heavy hand and they can do it the regulation at, at the, at the national level, provincial level, or even at the local level. And, uh, you know, it used to be, you'd see a lot of the, um, the innovation coming, it was like bottom up. And now that has really stopped and they're waiting for the top to dictate down. And mm-hmm. that, all of that has really, I, I think it's, I think you're going to see an impact on the overall development of China as a result of that, uh, unless they are able to, you know, reform and, and move back to that private enterprise innovation. and, 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 and Right. And that uh, part of that might be determined, this is my personal opinion, might be determined by the way the relationship between China and the West. So, you know, how, how much influence that kind of trade. I mean, no, that's exactly right. That's why you're seeing, I think this administration taking a different approach than say the prior administration. So the prior administration was America first, America alone and America, you know, their, their thinking was we're so big that you'll, you'll eventually, um, uh, you'll eventually heed our yeah 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 you'll 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 heal to the United States, right. and with the Biden administration, I think they you know they take a different approach, and I think you've seen this be successful in the past. It's where different countries come together, and all of them say to China, "Hey, this isn't acceptable," or "This is what we need you to do," and they're hearing it from multiple sources. So you know, you just think if the United States and Europe both said to China. I'm I'm just going to make this up, but you know you can't do X in our well in Europe or in the United States unless well now you've taken okay China's biggest markets, two of their biggest markets, and if you've closed those off, that's pretty significant, and that is a lot different than saying just the United States saying we're going to put tariffs on your products and make it more expensive because China's always had then all of these alternative markets, but if you get Australia, you get Europe. You get um, the United States, Mexico, Canada, um, you know, to join together. I mean, that is, uh, you know, a significant percentage of the world's market. And um, and I think that can have a significant impact. So I think you're going to see more of that consensus building and, you know, maybe not real direct more aggressive, hostile kind of confrontations with China, except on maybe when it really is necessary, but more of this group going yeah. to China and trying to get, you know, uh, maybe some changes in, in, in behavior. Yeah, and it's we could save this discussion for another day, but there is tensions with Taiwan again, so we'll have to see what happens there. But we, that's, I mean, who knows? Well, um, that's a whole, that's a whole show, and you're exactly, right, it's a whole show on, it, exactly. on its own. All right, that's so right. I'm take. I'm going to take the discussion in a different direction. So you've done a lot of public speaking and published many articles, many articles, many. I've looked at the list. It's amazing. So what are some of today's issues that, you know, in international business that fascinate or concern you the most? You know, I think there's a lot of opportunity out there. Um, and it's just, but understanding, though, how kind of the world is is somewhat changed um, after uh, the the Trump administration, and maybe how you know what we need to do to kind of take advantage of these opportunities. So you know what we've seen, and this is a continuation now, even into the Biden administration. So we've talked about China a little bit, but you know since the Trump administration, we now have 
much more strict regulation in how U.S. companies can interact with Chinese companies, especially around, you know, technology, um, especially when, you know, when you're selling a business or, give, you know, giving, taking investment from a Chinese company. I think those are things that, that, that businesses need to understand. And then with the pandemic, um, understanding supply chain, for example, um, I think many of us, I mean, we were getting calls back in the first part of January of 2020 saying, you know, um, my Chinese suppliers are all disappearing. I, you know, I can't get them. What do I do? And oh, so you yeah. had that initial um, supply shock and then, then you had the demand shock later, but it was recognizing, I don't think people really understood the full depths of their supply chain. So they thought to themselves, well, I buy these components from these people and it comes from China. Well, they didn't realize even when they had shifted maybe to Vietnam, the supply chain within the supply chain, and they didn't understand the weaknesses there. So one thing I think right now is a big issue and something that we're helping companies really understand is let, it, let, let us help you understand what your supply chain really looks like. Let's help you identify maybe where the weaknesses are. And then depending on you know, who you are and what you are and the resources you have available, how can we help you strengthen that supply chain? Does that mean we break it into, let's say, three different regional supply chains? So Asia, Americas, and Europe. Does that mean we find a few of like redundant suppliers in case there's another, you know, pandemic type event, you know, things like that. And then I think other opportunities are just understanding that that really the world now is our market. Um, you know, it used to be if I made some widgets here in, in, in Tennessee and I thought to myself, where can I sell them? I was probably thinking about Tennessee and maybe the surrounding states. And if I got really ambitious, maybe the region and, uh, and really, really ambitious, I could sell them to somebody all the way out there in California. Right. That was oh, like a big oh. deal. Um, and now with the Internet and, and the ability that we have to reach so many people, there's yeah. so many opportunities you know, for us to sell products or services um, to, to really all over the world. And, and I even tell this to my lawyers because as a, we're a service provider, I sell my service to somebody in the UK, that's an export. So we can export our own services and really think about the world now as your market and recognize that there are all these resources around you that are here to help. Your company, for example, the US Commercial Services, and there are others that will help companies you know, understand their opportunities and then even help them develop plans and how they can execute on those opportunities, you know, successfully, not to be, you know, afraid. This is a perfect time to get out there. Um, and there are some wonderful, you know, we're starting to see, I think, um, uh, more opportunities. You know, the UK and the US are negotiating a free trade agreement. I believe, hopefully, that will that will be concluded <laughs> successfully. And yeah. within, you know, I but I think it's a wonderful opportunity. You know, we have direct flights now from Nashville to London. Um, that has created now this 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 literally this bridge that I've noticed since those flights started. It just in an enormous uptick in interest from the UK in not just Nashville, but in Memphis and in other parts of Tennessee and other parts of the Southeast and, and, and vice versa. There are companies here that are now saying, well, you know, I can get over there now fairly easily. I'm going to start looking, maybe, maybe I'll expand over there. So I think there's, there's so many opportunities. I think there's opportunities in energy, um, in different types of technology, um, you know, uh, it's really, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm bullish on a lot of things. Uh, right. There's lots of opportunity. 
Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, and, um, you know, speaking of Nashville, Nashville clearly has a very active, you know, international trade community, uh, which you're a leader in many areas, uh, Nashville Chamber International Business Council, Japan American Society of Tennessee, Tennessee World Affairs Council, Tennessee China Network, to name a few. So some cities are more successful than others in developing, you know, their international trade vibrancy. What do you attribute to Nashville's growth in this area? You know, I think it comes down to um, the energy of the people in within the community itself. I don't think the city itself um, really could do this on its own. We needed the right say government leaders, the mayors, you know, and, and, and Metro Council, you needed the right uh, people in charge of organizations. And then, of course, you needed the business community itself, because really, it's the business community then that that populates all of these different organizations and helps the mayor, helps the council understand maybe what the opportunities are and how and, and, and really serve as the ambassador for the city um, in, 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 in attracting, say, new investment or in helping others um, by providing like mentorship or other kind of um, uh, just just uh, assistance in, in helping others maybe identify that they can too you know export or, or do business abroad. So I, I really think it it it's and I see this in Memphis too. Um, you know there there are there is a group of folks that I I see all the time very active um, in uh, promoting international business and I think over time if they can keep that going and engage more and more diverse groups of people, I believe um, that they, they will have as vibrant, if not more so, um, you know, recognizing that Memphis is on the Mississippi River, which is, you know, one of the main uh, uh, highways of trade in the United States. It has yeah. five of the six Class A rail lines. It has FedEx I and mean, all these things there. I think they, you know, that community can really blossom too. But I really, I, I think it comes back to the government and and uh, the business community itself. Yeah, I mean, I've just seen how it works in different cities and some are just mm -hmm. more, uh, you know, electric than others, so. Well, well, and I think, but also, this is something we also touched on was just the fact if, you know, to Nashville's credit, it's also its God-given location. I mean, it's literally, you know, what's the stat? It's, uh, I think, um, a 10-hour drive in a truck from about 70% of the U.S. market. I mean, think about that. Yes. That's pretty impressive. And so as a result of that, if I'm selling a widget, for example, then if I locate here in Nashville, right, I've got that 10 hours around in a truck. I'm three hours from FedEx, so I can get my stuff anywhere I want. And I'm also two and a half hours south of UPS's big hub. So, I mean, from this one location, I can pretty much sell anywhere in the world. And because I'm so close to both, I can sell later in the day than most other people. And so that gives right. me, you, you, you extrapolate that over time, and that's real revenue. And so I think. I mean, I have to be honest. I think it's it's also it's God given location. So maybe we've been successful in spite of people like me, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, but I think that that that's a big that is also a big factor um, sure. you know, as well. Absolutely. So as you know, we uh, like to take some time for storytelling on this podcast, <laughs> and so we love to hear some of your stories about your experiences uh, in your. 
Sure. I mean, you know, in international business, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a few of the disaster stories first because those, oh, those people are, seem to like that. They, they, they like those better than the success. I don't know why, oh, yeah. but they like those better than the success stories. So, you know, uh, one of uh, we were in China, we were in Shanghai, and um, we met uh, a um, a group that was setting up a uh, a clinic, a health clinic from the United States in Shanghai. And which I thought was a great idea. Uh, they they focused on an area uh, on a specific um, uh, illness or ailment that that was very was was on the rise in China. That was very popular. Before and so COVID. we were talking to them. Before. Oh, COVID. this was this goes yeah yeah before COVID. That's right that's right. And so we were asking them, well, tell me about what you're going to do. And and they told us, and they're going to import all these doctors from the United States and nurses. And I said, well, you know, what it, how how are you integrating them with the Chinese staff? And you know, how are you integrating that with like maybe some Chinese like literature and other things that you know be more recognizable to say a Chinese patient that they would be expecting? And they were like, well, no, well, we're not going to do any of that. And I'm like, you're not? Oh, no, 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 no. We are we we have a successful model in the United States. We've done this so many times. We are we know what we're doing, and we're bringing all this and blah blah blah. I said, well, I said, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. I said, but you know, I've my experience has been whether it's China or the UK or Germany or really anywhere that you you know you need to localize it to some extent because there are different. No, 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 no. You don't know what you're talking about. And I said, oh, okay. So they they walked off, and I was with one of my Chinese colleagues, and we both looked at each other. And I think we said at the same time, we said, uh, so how long do you think they'll last? And I said, six months. She said, nope, not even three. And I said, oh, come on, they'll last at least six months. And come to find out, they didn't even last the three. And, you know, uh... it's it's, again, you know, the lessons learned, you just can't take what you have in the United States, pick it up. And then go drop it in whatever country, whether it's China, Canada, any any place. Because again, we are culturally just different. We, we our perspectives are different. What we expect out of a, maybe a given service. You know, one of the things that really I found uh, amazing. I was I was visiting a hospital in uh, China in a very small, uh, uh, probably a tier four city, and they had it was an orthopedic hospital, and it had been started by. And I, I'm going to get it wrong because I can't remember how many greats I'm supposed to use, but like great, 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 great grandmother. Um, you know, so I don't know how many hundreds of years ago it started out as a traditional Chinese medicine, you know, uh, right. medical facility. But now right. they, they specialize in orthopedics and they had the, the fanciest of x-rays and MRIs and all this stuff. And um, and I noticed they were developing all this film and they were giving the film to these patients. And I'm like, why? Why do you do that? I mean, now it's all because they're reading it all digital. Right. And they said, oh, they said, oh, in China, the patient, when they pay a fee, they expect to get something in, you know, a value back. So you have to give them something for them to pay. And the fee was I can't even remember. It was maybe 10 RMB, which is like a dollar fifty. It was it was something, you know, next to nothing. Um, and but they so they they literally would print these X-rays and give them to the people, even though they never looked at them because they were all looking at the digit these fancy digital, you know, images. And so it's just again, it's just understanding the cultural differences. Oh, and, yeah. and 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 I had an architect that was with me on that trip. And he was explaining to me the differences between a Chinese hospital set up in the U.S. where the nurse is a, is a different – it's a different job in China than it is in the United States. Here it's more of a profession. There you're, you're, you're doing a lot less, you know, more menial kind of tasks, and it's the family's responsibility to feed 
the patient. So the family has to come to the hospital, cook the meals, and then give it to the, the patient themselves. And so their setup was very different. And it was just really interesting to hear all of that. So they, they didn't last very long, but that was still some good lessons there. Then I had um, – we had another um, – and this is more of a PPE-type story, very sophisticated um, – uh, uh, business guys. I mean, they do some very, very, very sophisticated export business. Um, they they deal with some very tough customers, very sharp elbowed kind of customers. They've seen it all, and you know they're very diligent in how they do these these PPE deals. They're you know whether it's gloves or the masks. I think people have heard about these, and and they've heard about the potential. You know, some of these deals are in the you know the billions of dollars and the profit for the, you know, it could be hundreds of millions. So of course it's attracting all kinds of people. People have never done this before. And we try to warn them that this is a very dangerous swimming with sharks kind of place. And even those guys um, have gotten burned now a few times, losing deposits and, 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 and things like that. And so again, it's just, you know, for the PPE stuff, my advice would be not to get into it unless you already do it. <laughs> uh, because it is it well i mean unless you're unless you're willing to lose a lot of money and if you are then the john m scanapieco's four children's college education fund will be happy to accept your donation and will send you a christmas card every year which is more than you will receive from the people who will uh take your money so oh you can just gosh. send it on and i will be you know your best friend so you know and there are, we have countless stories where you know, we had one, um, they were going to take investments uh, to build a, um, uh, to build a hospital, and uh, they were going to sign a contract with some folks, and I said, well, have you vetted them? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, are they who they say they are, and can they do what they say they're going to do? And I'm like, what do you, well, I mean, they were really nice. We've met them three or four times and, um, and, and all that, and I said, well, have you, like, I don't know, pulled their corporate information? Have you visited their office? You know, I can't remember where it was located. Like, no. And so we did all that. And of course, there was no corporate information. And when we sent someone to check the address, there was no such address. It was just an empty right. building. And, uh, and so, you know, it, it's those kinds of things that, you know, you just need to be diligent and, and always vet your business partners. Um, because unfortunately there are a lot of crooks out there. Now there are, there are probably even more really great people to do business with, but doing your homework and, and, and making sure they are who they say they are and they can do what they say they can do is, is, uh, you know, critical. And then when people have done that, I think they've been very successful. Like I was saying that, that hospital system, um, you know, we turned that into, uh, we must have done, man, I can't, even, I mean, I lost, I'm just thinking off the top of my head. I mean, I, I've, I've at least 10, maybe more um, of those type of arrangements. And, you know, and, and what the, the Chinese parties were willing to pay was not a small sum. And so for them, it, it didn't require, you know, didn't require investment on their part. So the risk was very low. Um, it didn't require really anyone to really go to China other than, you know, at some point that was part of the contract. They could go and inspect things and all that. But I mean, again, it was all paid for. It was all paid for in advance. So there was no risk of, you know, um, not getting your money. And it was great for them. I mean, it was a nice uh, income stream. And, and some of the folks had come from bigger systems where they had been involved in cross-border business. It was great for them because they got to keep their kind of toes in the water, so to speak. And yeah. so, you know, that was very, very successful. And then others, you know, where we've been able to get with them at the beginning 
and you know they have a manufacturing program they want to run in China, for yeah. example. Um, we've gone, we've helped them negotiate the contracts, we vetted all the suppliers, we we got rid of the ones that just you know either were com- clearly frauds or we just didn't think they could ever do what they were saying they could do. So we went and inspected them all, you know, in, in person. Right. Um, and you know when so you need a, when you need a clean room and you only see a dirt floor. You can imagine they probably can't, you know, can't do it. But that was fine. I mean, because again, now the the the, the client has a very, um, you know, they've been doing this now for several years. Uh, I don't think we've had. I've never. They haven't called us to say they have had, ever had a problem. They've been able to work all these things out. But they've had really good suppliers. They've been able to develop long term, you know, relationships with. And the same with companies, um, you know, taking them say to other countries uh, like the UK or, or Canada or Mexico, and just helping them understand how to do business there, what the rules are, how they're different from the United States, and then, you know, helping them get set up. So, I mean, I, you know, there's, uh, we probably have got, I've got more train wreck stories if you want them, but, um, but, uh, but, you know, they, the they usually, yeah, but they're usually, <laughs> the, it's, you know, I have to be honest with you, it's usually the same thing. They, they did it on their own, not right. recognizing they needed, they needed professional assistance of, you know, experienced practitioners, whether it's accountants, lawyers, whatever it may be, folks like you in terms of helping them develop the the right plan, uh, you know, logistics, I mean, all of it. Um, Or they, um, uh, they, they just didn't vet the folks. And, you know, they got, you know, they they got, they didn't use the right, they didn't use the right agreements, they didn't protect their IP correctly. I mean, it really, you can really distill it down to, you know, a couple of a few buckets of things that had they just done X, they probably could have avoided um, a lot of that hassle. And what's sad about it is I find that sometimes once they get burned in that way, then they won't go do it again because right. they don't trust the process. And it's a real shame because some of these companies are really good companies with really good products or services that I, I you know, you beg them to go because I know, I mean, I, I could connect them with real people, right people. And, uh, you know, they just, they're just yeah. not interested in it. And, that, and that's a real shame because I, I think, it's uh, you know I, I like it when people go out in a, in a broad. I think that helps them broaden their own horizons as to what the world looks like. And Absolutely. then when we're making policy decisions here, I think they're better informed as to maybe the implications of those policies and say, you know, that may sound good when we hear it, but I know if you put that into practice, it's going to have this adverse effect on either my business or the business in the U.S. as a whole. And maybe we should oppose it or we should write to our congressman and say, hey, have you yeah. thought about it this way? You know, things like that. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. I can think of a million other topics yeah. to talk about today. But, uh, yeah, we, we'll just have to talk again. This has been fascinating john i'm so grateful to you for joining us today um really uh thank you so much for for being here uh, well betsy thank you thanks for having me i really appreciate it i mean i you know i really enjoy uh, the opportunity to talk about these issues and hopefully uh you know we can help people um you know unlock their own potential to export or to do business uh you know abroad absolutely and we uh when we uh this will be published on our website and we'll have a link to your business and um, you know, we'll have some information there so people can find out more about Baker Donaldson and their international. Great. So, well, thank you so much. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I want to say to our listeners, we'd love to get a conversation going about this episode, as well as, you know, general discussions about exporting. Please reach out to me on exportstoriespodcast.com. You can ask questions or post comments on the episode page. And we are also on Facebook and Twitter. We are creating a community of exporters here. So reach out and chat. And so anyway, thanks again to John and to all our listeners. It's been fun talking today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting. 